You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 58 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And as regular listeners will know, I like to begin with a shout out to our new listeners. And this week we have new listeners in London, Birmingham, Taunton, Canterbury, Cardiff, Dartford, Kilmarnock, Stockport, Bristol, Cambridge, Hemel Hempstead, Sheffield, Leicester, Hull, Norwich, Glasgow, Northampton, Newcastle-upon-Tyne, Nottingham, Southampton, Ipswich, Portsmouth, Guildford and Coventry. And then in Ireland we have new listeners this week in Leinster and in Meath and then in France from Paris and Saint-Saint-Denis, in Barcelona, in Spain, in Brussels and West Flanders in Belgium, in Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam, Eindhoven and Gelderland in the Netherlands, in Berlin, Munich and Frankfurt in Germany, in Copenhagen and Hoverstaden in Denmark, in Stockholm in Sweden, in Oslo in Norway, in Helsinki in Finland, in Perm Krai in Russia, in Kiev in the Ukraine, in West Pomerania in Poland, in Bern in Switzerland, in Milan in Italy, in Vienna and Solpenten in Austria, in Budapest in Hungary, in Bucharest in Romania, in Sofia in Bulgaria, in Istanbul in Turkey, in Tel Aviv in Israel, in Tunis in Tunisia, and that's our first ever listener in Tunisia, so a big welcome to you, in Vadodara and Tamil Nadu in India, in Bangkok in Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong, Manila in the Philippines, Tokyo and Kanagawa in Japan, Melbourne and Perth in Australia, Auckland in New Zealand, Sao Paulo in Brazil, Quebec in Canada, and then in the USA we have new listeners this week in Philadelphia, in San Francisco, in Washington, in Boston, in New York, in Los Angeles, in Dallas, in Charlotte, in Atlanta, in Chicago, in Seattle, in Houston, in Atlanta, in Cleveland, in Minneapolis, in San Diego, in Austin, in Denver, in Rochester, in Jacksonville and in Cincinnati. So once again, a great range of new listeners from all around the globe. Fantastic to have you all listening. I really do appreciate everyone who takes 30 minutes out of the week to catch up on the latest in the world with GDPR. And of course a big welcome as always to all my regular listeners right across the globe. And uh, it's great to have you all there and know that you're all listening along. If you have any comments about the show or if you have any ideas of people you'd like to see interviewed on the show or indeed if you'd like to be interviewed by me on the show yourself then please do just drop me a line to podcasts at insurety.co.uk that's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y dot co.uk. Podcast at insurety.co.uk. I do read every single piece of feedback you send in, so thank you so much for those who do send in feedback. It's really appreciated and really useful. I don't have time, unfortunately, to acknowledge or answer each piece of feedback individually, but please do be reassured that every, uh, every item of feedback you send to me is read and I incorporate them wherever I can. So, in a few moments, I'll be telling you what's coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. So, coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have a look at the recent data breach 
from British Airways and whether in producing their claims website for those wishing to seek compensation but limiting that claim to 17 weeks, whether British Airways is swerving its responsibilities. We then have news of a data breach from the Council Tax Department at the Isle of Wight Council. We then have news that a criminal investigation has been launched after a data breach at a hospital in Wigan. We then have an article on Facebook suspending over 10,000 apps on its platform for unauthorised use of Facebook user profiles. We look at the car leasing industry and also Tesla and how Tesla is working to allay concerns over driver privacy and ensuring that its privacy policy remains within the scope of GDPR. We then have a very interesting appeal court ruling from the Netherlands on what data you as an organisation need to supply to a user or a customer who is making a data subject access request. And then finally this week, we look at what efforts China and Japan are taking to bring themselves into compliance with GDPR. So as always, a mixed bag for you this week. I hope it's something that of interest to everyone. And uh, please enjoy the show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Regular listeners will know that we have been following a data breach at British Airways, which in itself has resulted in the ICO proposing a penalty of £183 million on British Airways. But if you remember last week, I spoke about the compensation website which has been set up. Well, as a result of that, there is now some action being taken because British Airways have been accused of swerving their responsibility for the data breach by trying to limit the time period available for victims to claim compensation. And it's been brought forward now by a number of lawyers. Give a bit of background, up to 600,000 customers were affected in the data breach last year after hackers managed to intercept the details of people who'd made bookings through the BA website and took some of their financial details. The airline has now applied to launch its own class action for victims, but as we've said, this includes a 17-week time limit for claimants to join. Lawyers have branded this move to be unprecedented and warned that the cynical action was designed to limit a potential £3 billion payout to customers. British Airways, of course, has landed itself in bad press for a number of reasons in recent weeks, so I'm not quite sure they didn't want this to add to it, but we will see. Some 185,000 British Airways customers were believed to have had their details compromised between April and July 2018, while a further 380,000 were affected by a breach between August and September 2018. Details taken include their name, billing address, email address and card payment information, including in tens of thousands of cases the CVV security code, the three digits on the back of your debit or credit card. Lawyers have indicated that victims could receive as much as £16,000 each in cases where psychological injury is extreme, while average compensation payments for distress could reach £6,000 each. 
financial losses from any fraud resulting from the data hack will also be able to be claimed. Your Lawyers, a consumer rights law firm representing claimants, branded the time limit imposed on the class action as a disgrace. It said that previous group litigation orders have been applied for by claimants, not defendants, and that in larger consumer actions, a court would never allow such a short recruitment window unless British Airways could guarantee that all affected customers have been notified. For your lawyers, Director Aman Johal said, This is a new low for British Airways, a disgrace. It has let down hundreds of thousands of customers by losing their car payment details. Now it's failing them again by giving everyone affected just 17 weeks to claim their rightful compensation for distress caused. Never mind to fly to serve, BA should change its tagline to to fly to swerve responsibility, he said. A hearing at the Chancery Division of the High Court on October 4th will decide if British Airways action can go ahead under its proposed terms. So far, only around 6,000 potential claimants are estimated to have contacted lawyers via the British Airways claims website. A British Airways spokesperson said it had been working continuously with specialist cyber forensic investigators and the National Crime Agency to fully investigate the data theft. Sources within BA said the airline did not recognise the £3 billion figure and insisted that such action was not unprecedented. So we will keep an eye on that high talk case for you and obviously bring you details of that as it happens. And... In the meantime, if you are a customer of British Airways, been in the periods that have stated, and you believe that you could have a claim, then the website set up for you to make your claim can be found at www.badatabreach, that's all one word, badatabreach.com. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. The Isle of Wight Council had an unfortunate data breach this week. A number of letters were sent out by the Isle of Wight Council to households across the island, mistakenly uh, containing the personal information of other people, including full names, addresses, monies owed and council tax reference numbers. This story originally reported in the Island Echo on the Isle of Wight. The standard letters which were issued by the Isle of Wight Council Tax Department have somehow been double printed. On one side, there's the correct details of the recipient, whilst the other side contains the personal data of someone completely different. Shocked locals have expressed concerns about the apparent GDPR data breach, with one source saying that the letter they received contained the information of an unknown gentleman in ride. It has been confirmed by the Isle of Wight Council that a total of 51 letters were posted containing details of another person, which, to put it into context, is a fairly small number compared to the 70,000 households on the Isle of Wight. The letters have been delivered to households across the island and are not specific to any particular geographic area, so anyone on the island could potentially be affected. Isle of Wight Council officials have subsequently gone door-to-door hand-delivering a second letter explaining the error and requesting that the original letter is not opened. The second letter reads, You may have received a letter addressed to you from the Council Tax Department marked from the Isle of Wight Council. It has come to our attention that this letter may also contain details that do not relate to your Council Tax account 
and for this reason we kindly request you do not open this letter if you have not already done so. Please contact our offices immediately if you have received correspondence from us either today or in the coming few days and we will arrange for the letter to be collected from you as quickly as possible. Please accept our sincere apologies for any distress or inconvenience this may have caused you. Please also be assured we're doing our utmost to deal with this error and we thank you kindly for your assistance and understanding in this matter. In response to the incident when we contacted the Isle of Wight Council, a spokesman said, We are investigating how this data breach occurred and ensure it does not happen again. After realising the data breach, officers are currently visiting those affected to apologise and hand deliver a letter of apology and to collect the letters with errors. In line with GDPR requirements, we are currently investigating internally through our Corporate Information Unit whether this data breach has met the threshold for self-referral to the Information Commissioner's Office, the ICO. I'd also say our view here at GDPR Weekly Show is that given the relatively low number of people affected in this case, it probably, on balance, doesn't need to be reported to the ICO. One would just hope, though, that, of course, that the Isle of Wight Council have recorded the incident in their data breach register. And uh, just a reminder to everyone that if you do suffer a data breach, however small, do make sure you've recorded it in your data breach register in case there's any requirement to look back on it in the future and discover what happened and when. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A criminal probe has been launched after a data breach was discovered at a hospital in Wigan in Lancashire. Thousands of confidential hospital patient records were accessed multiple times by unauthorised staff. The Wrightington, Wigan and Lee NHS Foundation Trust has sent out letters to victims of the data breach who it's believed number more than 2,000, explaining that their personal information was viewed on multiple occasions by an employee who had no legitimate reason to access the files and were not employed to do so. As a result, the ICO has now launched a criminal investigation. On its website, the NHS Trust says 2,172 members of the public have been affected by this incident. It's possible that clinical documentation, including blood test results, care pathways, medications, secretaries letters and discharge letters have been accessed. The NHS Trust has told those affected, unfortunately during this investigation poor computer etiquette was also identified and therefore we are unable to validate the specific individual concerned. The employee who has inappropriately accessed your record is a member of our staff who has legitimate access to our electronic health record system, for example a medical professional or clinical administrator. One recipient of the letter, who has regularly been treated at Wigan Infirmary, expressed concern after discovering that several people may have snooped on her private details. Said, I've got a really sensitive record, it's not like I've gone in with a small ear infection, I have mental health issues and I've been through domestic violence. Now anyone could know that. Paul Howard, the company secretary and data protection officer for the NHS Trust, said, Wrightington, Wigan and Lee NHS Foundation Trust take data protection and patient confidentiality very seriously. My role as data protection officer is to monitor the organisation's compliance with data protection legislation and to be available to individuals who wish to exercise any of their rights under the legislation. 
We have written to the families concerned and have offered our sincere apologies on this matter. We've also reported the incident to the Information Commissioner's Office. He went on to say, We take our duty of confidentiality to our patients extremely seriously and the Information Government's team have conducted a thorough investigation into this breach, which is still ongoing. Therefore, it would not be appropriate to comment further. As part of the investigation so far, there has been no evidence of the information being used for personal gain. Further information is available for patients on the Trust website, which is at www.wwl.nhs.uk. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Facebook announced this week that it has suspended tens of thousands of apps connected to its platform, which it suspects have been collecting large amounts of user profile data. The new figure of tens of thousands of apps is a sharp rise from the 400 apps flagged up a year ago by the company's investigation following the Cambridge Analytica scandal that saw tens of millions of Facebook profiles scraped to help swing undecided voters in favour of the Trump campaign during the presidential election in the US in 2016. Facebook did not provide a more specific number in its blog post announcing the suspension, but said the apps were built by 400 developers. Many of the apps have been banned for a number of reasons, like siphoning off Facebook user profile data, or making data public without protecting their identities, or other violations of Facebook's policies. Despite the bans, the social media giant said it has not confirmed other instances of misusing user data beyond those which has already notified the public. Among those previously disclosed include South Korean analytics firm Rankwave, which was accused of abusing Facebook's developer platform and then refusing to be audited by Facebook, and My Personality, a personality quiz that collected data on more than 4 million users. The suspension action comes in the wake of the since-defunct Cambridge Analytica and other serious privacy and security breaches, and regular listeners will be aware that there are a number of issues at the moment with Facebook being investigated by the Irish Information Commissioner's Office, since Ireland is the lead ICO for Facebook in Europe. Facebook said its investigation is continuing, and we will of course keep you up to date with any development in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Finance and leasing companies across the UK have been moving to try and reassure their customers that any data that was collected by their vehicles on their use of the vehicle or the position of the vehicle was legitimate under GDPR. And indeed, one manufacturer, Tesla, has gone further this week to explain how its data is compliant with GDPR and other privacy policies. Turning to the Tesla... Tesla's new Model 3 has an in-cab facing camera built into the rearview mirror to monitor the cabin for when the vehicles are updated to work autonomously. However, a Tesla spokesperson has said, Tesla complies with GDPR and handles all customer data in accordance with our privacy policy, which clearly outlines the types of data we collect and the lengths we go to to protect our customers' privacy in the process. As our privacy policy states, customers can opt out of certain features at any time if they wish. Lex Auto Lease, Total Motion and Ogilvy Fleet all confirmed they are still working with the brand and they are confident that Tesla vehicles are GDPR compliant. 
Tesla chief executive Elon Musk has replied to a Tesla driver online earlier this year when they raised privacy concerns about the in-cab camera technology. Musk said, The camera is there for when we start competing with Uber and Lyft. In case someone messes up your car, you can check the video. Musk confirmed that the hardware is built into the cars and the brand is finishing off software and waiting on regulatory approval before any ride-sharing or cabin monitoring functionality is switched on. Tesla went on to confirm that owners can decide to turn off the in-cab camera. It also said that until the software update rolls, the camera in the cabin is disabled by default. Tesla routine to stress there is no physical tracker installed in Teslas. However, drivers can track their vehicles through the Tesla mobile app, which uses GPS to locate the communications chip in the vehicle. Total Motion has offered Teslas since the Model S went on sale in the UK in 2014, and it has ordered 200 of the new Tesla Model 3. Simon Hill, Total Motion Managing Director, said, We are still quoting on Tesla and we have no concerns or issues about GDPR or the camera. We have confirmed with Tesla that all the functionality in the car confirms with European law. For Ogilvy Fleet, Nick Hardy, their sales and marketing director, also confirmed that it is not concerned about breaches of GDPR and the company's experienced no problems with drivers. Nick said, I can understand there are more general concerns about the future of connected cars and how that data is tracked. It's something the industry needs to tackle, but you have to accept this high level of connectivity as vehicles and drivers come closer together. Ogilvy said when Tesla drivers take a vehicle, they are asked if they want to connect to the manufacturer's app and that this process was fully GDPR compliant. Hardy said, We are all getting used to giving consent to apps on our phones when it's something that's going to be useful. A spokesman for Lex Autolease said there were still some in leasing that refused to work with Tesla due to Tesla being more retail focused. The Lex spokesperson said, we are pleased to be working collaboratively to help Tesla develop a fleet proposition that meets the needs and expectations of corporate customers. Lease Plan, Arvel, Alphabet and ALD Automotive will contact the comment but declined to do so. However, Lease Plan and Arvel both showed quotes for Tesla models online and we understand that ALD also offers quotes on Tesla. Caroline Sandal, ACFO Chairman, said connected car data and driver privacy is a murky area for fleet managers. It's quite difficult to track and trace who has the data and where it's going, she said. Society is changing with increased levels of connectivity, but I think fleets and drivers have a right to be concerned in the wake of things like the Facebook and Cambridge Analytica scandal. If we're talking about vehicles talking to infrastructure and it's anonymous data, that's all well and good. But when we're getting into tracking individual vehicle movements, driving style, and whether that data is going to be sold onto a third party, that becomes more concerning. I'm sure this won't be the last time that we talk about cars and tracking data on the GDPR Weekly Show, so please do listen out for future updates on this story. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We mentioned over the last few weeks how case law is beginning to appear for GDPR and the way that the legal courts believe that the regulations should be interpreted. And there was an interesting appeal court decision this week from the Netherlands where in a case between an individual and the Church Council of the Reformed Church liberated indoor dread, 
the court ruled that when someone asks for their data as is held and correctly, in our opinion, stated that the data comprise both paper documents and electronic documents, that the person making the request was entitled to see all of the notes that were on their file. And where this particular example sort of brought up an interesting precedent is that if someone makes a request to see all their data and you recover their file from wherever, whether it's a physical file or an electronic file, but for the moment let's stick with physical files. So you retrieve the person's physical file, you take all the data from it, all the documents from it, you scan them, and you then prepare them to be issued back to the person who made the request. So far, all so good. You then go through each document and have to redact anything which the person is not entitled to see. And examples here would be other people's names, other individuals, um, probably even the names of people within your company, although that can be a matter of company policy. But certainly email addresses, telephone numbers, anything that might be useful to contact that person should be redacted. However, the issue in case here was what about if there are notes on the file, a physical paper note on the file, from one staff member to another which talks about the person making the data subject access request but only in general terms or may not necessarily identify them from data on the page other than the fact that that page is in the person's file. So to give an example it could be that you make a note to a colleague that this person is a um, proverbial pain in the butt when they come to making an inquiry or that the person has special needs or that the person is given to swearing during their conversations or that perhaps the person has threatened a member of staff or the company or the organisation. Then if that document's there, it hasn't actually got any data about the person directly on it other than an opinion, are you obliged to provide a copy of that document to the person making the subject access address? Well, after consideration by the Appeal Court in Holland, the Appeal Court came to the decision that yes you did. That basically once you opened a physical file for somebody and you found that file, and the same would be true by the way if you had a folder of documents on your computer system, then the person making the data subject access request has the right under GDPR to see absolutely everything that's in that folder. So you can't go through and think, well that was just something from Joe to me and it was just an internal note, so I'm not going to show them that. You now have to show them everything. And I think it's likely that all the other courts across Europe will follow the lead of this appeal court now that this has been taken this far. The other issue to come out of this was cost, because, as you know, you can't charge somebody to provide the information under GDPR. But what about their costs? If they're going to court and they're appealing against you, then... What about their trust in that scenario? Well, in this case, the court ruled that the defendant, i.e. the company who should have provided the information, the church in this case, who should have provided the information and hadn't, should pay the legal costs of the person requesting the data. 
And so in this case, they looked at the total cost of the appeal, which came to some 13,600 euros. And they decided that the defendant, the organisation that had not provided the data, should pay £10,000 of that towards the cost of the person bringing the complaint. So an interesting precedent, and we're, we're starting to see more of these now, particularly from mainland Europe coming forward, as the actual wording of GDPR gets tested in the courts. But I think this one is an important ruling, which is that the person is entitled to see all of the documents that are in their folder. An exception to that, of course, would be uh, medical documents where you could argue that it was detrimental to the person's men mental health to see all of the documents. But with that exception, I think everyone else, we have to say that you need to provide the information. And incidentally, the reason that this person knew that there were documents that they'd not seen was that one of the documents they did see was the table of contents from the start of the folder. And of course, when they went through the table of contents and compared that with the documents that they'd actually received, they'd realised there were a chunk of documents that they hadn't received. So an interesting trial, an interesting case, and therefore one that we need to take notice of. A second part of this appeal, which again I think we need to take notice of, is that part of the church's defence that it tried to claim was that some of the documents they'd not been able to provide had been copied onto a USB stick and that the church didn't know where that USB stick was. The appeal court took quite a firm line on this and reminded the church that it was important that they could either find this USB stick or that they could provide documentary proof that it had been destroyed. Otherwise, of course, they were laying themselves open not just to not providing the information to the person who'd made the data subject access request, but in fact to having a data breach, because they were now saying they had a USB stick with data on it relating to individuals that they didn't know where it was. So a case again, I guess, of if something happens like this, do always get legal advice, do always come to specialists like ourselves and we'll do our best to help you. And do be careful what you say in court under questioning, that you don't, um, in the words of the old parable, uh, if you're in a hole, don't start digging a bigger one for yourself. And so, some interesting readings there, and if we get other interesting readings in the future, you know, of course, that we will bring them to you as soon as we can in upcoming editions of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. While GDPR in Europe has been in effect for over a year now, Results from a new survey conducted by law firm McDermott, Will and Emery and the Ponymon Institute show that businesses in China and Japan are still lagging behind in their data privacy compliance efforts. However, Mark Schreiber, a partner at McDermott, Will and Emery, thinks it may well not stay that way for long and thinks that entities in China and Japan may have been holding back to see what happened with enforcement in the EU or indeed how the US have responded to GDPR, but I think now that enforcement is obviously taking place, and also the US obviously have their Californian Protection Act, CCPA, and other US states are following suit, 
then it looks like certainly Japan and also China are moving to bring themselves into line. It should be noted, of course, that Japan has already entered into a data transfer partnership agreement with the EU earlier this year, and Schreiber notes that China has proven capable of propelling change very quickly. It may be that China and or Japan will advance after seeing responses to GDPR in the ways that even in the US hasn't done, Schreiber said. As for right now, both countries still appear to be biding their time. The survey, which included responses from 1,263 companies across the US, Europe, China and Japan, found that only 29% of Chinese companies and 32% of Japanese companies indicated that they were fully compliant with GDPR. That was a good 10% lower than Western counterparts. Awareness didn't fare much better, with 49% of Chinese respondents and 36% of Japanese respondents stating they were not familiar with the regulations under GDPR. According to Schreiber, China and Japan don't want to be leading the pack when it comes to GDPR compliance, but why? Dan Green, a certified information privacy professional at Beckage, pointed to the costs and resources the company would have to direct towards compliance. Some might be more inclined to sit back and monitor the number and scope of the fines that resulted globally from GDPR infractions before deciding on the kind of investment it merits, he said. There are also, of course, existing privacy and cybersecurity regimes in both Japan and China to consider. Japan's Act on the Protection of Personal Information has been on its statute book since 2003, while China's cybersecurity law was put on its statute book in 2017. Businesses looking to comply with both GDPR and Chinese cybersecurity law, for example, may find themselves juggling two competing directives. Because GDPR tends to focus on individuals' rights and protections, while China's law is geared more towards national security, with data required to undergo a review by the Chinese government before transfer if it meets certain criteria. Companies found in violation of China's cybersecurity law can be fined or even forfeit their internet presence. The spectre of those outcomes may also be factored into a business's approach to GDPR. Dan Green thinks that there needs to be an added layer of analysis for agreements that may trigger concerns related to both GDPR and the Chinese privacy or cybersecurity rules. So look at sort of what the risks are in your own backyard versus those that are a thousand miles away, he said. But, of course, market forces are market forces, and especially with the changes in the EU with Brexit and with other ongoing problems in the Middle East affecting potentially worldwide trade in oil and so on, consumers may be too much business for Japan and China to simply pass up. And, of course, a steadily expanding roster of fines against companies like Google, British Airways, Marriott Hotels is a good incentive to play by the rules. In conclusion, Schreiber said that China and Japan are beginning to realise that even if there isn't a lot of enforcement activity right away, it could catch up to them and that would be bad for them with respect to reputation. And companies from China and Japan are often concerned with reputation. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback. 
by sending an email to podcast at insurety.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurety at www.insurety.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember, keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurety production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.